Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford Bloor of Tifo Football, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. Football never sleeps, so already we're looking towards next season. We'll be hearing a lot about pandemic economics over the summer. But football still prefers the economics of the madhouse. Manchester City, for example, have spent a billion pounds, give or take the odd million, failing to win the Champions League under Pep Guardiola. So Seb... They're going to throw more money at the problem, aren't they? Well, I think they have to, Mike. And I think the way to look at it is probably as a kind of uh, as an exercise in renewal. If you think about what the Chelsea team who beat them in the Champions League final are, which is a collection of very young players, all of whom most likely will mature together, City need to restock a few of their departments. And actually, as much as Pep Guardiola's decision-making has dominated the uh, response to that game, I think it... It also revealed a few weaknesses in it field. And, you know, one of them has, has kind of been further revealed by Sergio Aguero's ageing and now departure. I think they need a centre forward. I think they, well, they've needed a long-term successor to Fernandinho for quite some time. That's now becoming more of a priority with every transfer window. And maybe a left back. I mean, they spent a lot of a lot of money in the fullback positions. They finally got the centre-half positions right feel like there's still some improvement that they could have on the left side of that defence. Yeah, they. this is the nature of it. It's easy to be cynical, Mike, and to say, well, this is just what they do. But it's what they'll have to do to compete. They have to keep improving. You cannot, in the modern Premier League, spend some money and sit on that investment for two or three years. You have to keep pace with whatever everybody else is doing. Yeah, interesting world we live in when Barcelona are almost City's second team, isn't it? You know, you've got Aguero going there on a free... Only this morning, Eric Garcia has signed a five-year contract there uh, with a 400 million euro buyout clause, which does boggle the uh, the mind somewhat. I suppose the, the broader question off the back of that, Glenn, is that if you look around Europe, Spanish clubs are struggling financially, Italian clubs similarly, yet the Premier League still has got ostentatious wealth. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, you think? And how do you, how would it affect 
the the calendar and and the nature of in European football going forward? Well, I guess whether it's a good thing or a bad thing depends on your perspective. I mean, if you're a leading executive for a European club, it's definitely a very bad thing. There was a piece by Oliver Kahn at the weekend, the former Bayern Munich and uh, Germany goalkeeper, you know, expressing that very fear that English clubs would now dominate. And this was obviously behind part of the ESL proposals. Then you've got, if you're like a leading executive of an English club, then it's clearly a good thing. It's almost getting to the stage, perhaps not so much before qualifying, I suppose, but where we were 40 years ago, when it was harder to qualify for the European Cup, it was to win. I think we we may well be heading for a period of English domination of the European competitions. I mean, it's also very obvious, you know, the Europa League, of course, could easily be an all-English final as well, as it was only a couple of years ago. Tottenham already are probably the favourites for the conference competition, yeah, as the only English club in it, and clearly the wealthiest club in it by a country mile regardless of who's managing, who they've got. So we are looking at the situation. I mean, Harry Kane, only five years ago, would have been, where's he going? Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid. Yeah, now it's like, is he going to Manchester City? Is he going to Manchester United? Is he going to Chelsea? You know, the most likely destination for Kane is going to be within the UK, within England. The, the wider perspective, of course, is is this a good thing in terms of the wider English football? That the you know, There's more money even more money next year in the coefficients for the Champions League winners and the teams in Champions League. Yeah, does that skewing of the finances make the English, the Premier League, even more of a... I know Leicester battling to fight their way in, but squad depth is always an issue. I mean, after this mad pandemic season, we've ended up with a situation whereby the teams with the biggest squad, well, guess what? They came in the first four, then, you know, they're the highest-paying teams, and you know, they reached them, the, the Champions League final, the two richest teams in the country. So it's no great surprise that depth was a matter. It's, it's a mixed thing. I mean, it rather depends on your perspective. I mean, there is a sense that with all this wealth in the game, it would be nice to see it spread a little bit more widely in the English pyramid system. Yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath on that one, to be honest. With, uh, you know, with Chelsea, you know, I can understand the logic given the sort of circumstances we've we've spoken of just now, Seb, I can understand the logic of, of, of linking to Romelu Lukaku, given Inter's financial implosion. You know, you mentioned right at the top of the show that Chelsea have got a relatively young group. Their best is yet to come, isn't it? You'd have thought so. Uh, if you think about sort of the uh, improvement in form of someone like Kai Havertz over the season, I have to believe that Timo Werner will be better next year than he has been this. I was a little bit disappointed by Hakim Ziyech. I think he can be better too. And then add into that equation players like Reese James and Mason Mount. Yes, you've got a very, very strong developing nucleus. The Lukaku thing is really interesting, Mike, because his form speaks for itself over in Serie A. He's done wonderfully well in Italy. I think he's elevated his status in the game during his time in Inter Milan. Nevertheless, if you were Romelu Lukaku, would you, would you come back to England where there's this perpetual debate about just how capable he is he always seems to there's a very sort of binary discussion that surrounds him when he plays his football in England you know, every time he misses a every time he misses a chance there's a you know five different columns that spawn from that <laughs> and then whenever he takes you know whenever he you know takes an opportunity to score the goal there are another five which talk about you know his place in the game and you know how he's a kind of an elite forward I don't know I'd avoid it I mean the, the situation into Milan is very nebulous still no one really knows how much money they have to raise or what the effect is going to be on that playing group of Antonio Conte's departure. I don't know whether those players have any enthusiasm for uh, Simone Inzaghi. I don't know. We'll, we'll see, I guess. I'd give it a miss if I was him. He's been to Chelsea. I don't think... I understand the sort of the, the appeal in wanting to come back and prove everybody wrong at, at a club where he was kind of bombed out before he had a chance. 
but it feels like that moment might have, might, might have gone in his career. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, politics and, and to a degree corporate vanity get in the way sometimes of Francois, do don't we, do they? We, and... Do we think, um, I mean, the thing about Chelsea is that there's this sort of prevailing logic that they need a centre-forward. Is that true? I mean, I, I, I really like Kai Harvard's as a, in that role. I think his... His best football is played when everything in the attacking half of a side is directed towards him and goes through him. And if I've got a hundred million pound player, I want to create the conditions for him to succeed. And I don't know whether adding a centre forward ahead or around him is necessarily conducive to doing that. So it's 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 a funny one. Mm. Look at the stats, though. You know, the their leading scorer uh, was Jorginho with seven penalties. So that does you know, highlight a need to a degree, doesn't it? I suppose the politics are that Harry Kane's not going to go to Chelsea, is he? That, that that's I don't think that'll ever work. The the intriguing one for me, Glenn, was Lewandowski was mentioned. Now, despite his age, and I suppose we've got to assume there'll be a two year deal involved or something like that, he could be a game changer in the Premier League, couldn't he? Well, I think if you had the opportunity to sign him, you would. I mean, uh, and his age isn't really an issue at Chelsea because, you know, as mentioned, they've got quite a, a young core of players, so they could certainly afford to carry a 30-year-old centre-forward. And, I mean, there's no sign of his powers waning. 30 is no great age in professional sport these days, as we've seen in all sorts of sports, you know, whether it be uh, the NFL, cricket, tennis, you know, and football's no different. The players look after themselves so much better now. There's no reason to think that Lewandowski hasn't got a huge amount of goals left in him. Um, to have him at the front of that Chelsea forward line, you would assume there will be a very high chance conversion. If you think of all the chances that Werner missed, if you turn those into goals, that's that's a lot of goals. Werner would obviously be quite a tempting mate weight as a return because his record in Germany it was fantastic. And like Seb, I do think that he will be better next year if he was still leading the Chelsea line and his movement's very good. And he's looked better as a player since they started playing him in, in the right position rather than having coming off the wing all the time. It did strike me slightly odd that Chelsea kept playing players in positions which they weren't playing in when they when they bought them. But yeah, Lewandowski for Chelsea, well, you'd have to say that Chelsea, Man City, Liverpool, triangle at the top of the tree would be very competitive. I mean, as it is, the Tuchel with a full season under his belt in terms of a full pre-season, rather than trying to do it on the hoof, Chelsea do look like they're going to be very competitive next year, as they ought to be as European champions, to be fair. Mm. You're based in, in Germany now, Seb. Tuchel has highlighted hasn't he the the relative strength and you know let's face it fashionability of, uh, of of german coaching if you had to give an idea of why there are so many german coaches coming through what is it is it a, a strategic move we're, we're seeing come through or is it is it you know the thing that strikes me about a lot of the german coaches is that they're quite empathetic quite people friendly if you like what have you made of German coaching when you've seen it up close? Goodness, what a big question. Well, I think the first observation is that you see a lot of German coaches getting jobs at big clubs, and that's really, really helpful. I think the nature of German, well, the nature of the Bundesliga is very helpful because essentially what you have is a monopoly, and then a lot of teams, probably six or seven teams below Bayern Munich scrabbling for the positions behind them and doing so without necessarily being able to depend on huge financial advantages over each other. If you think of kind of the differences between Eintracht Frankfurt and Leverkusen and Wolfsburg, it's not as pronounced as it would be between, say, the top six in England and everybody else. I think that places a greater emphasis on coaching. I think that 
it provides a slightly better stage. So the focus in the conversation is on systems and improvement and organic factors rather than necessarily who can go out and spend 18 million pounds every summer or 18 million euros, sorry, Europe. So <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I would be lying if I said I was wholly impressed with all of it. I, I, think, I think at the moment, Germany, if you spend time in Germany, if you, if you spend an afternoon, like a Sunday watching German football, now, it's really interesting that you, if you, in the ad breaks between, you're likely to see an advert featuring Jurgen Klopp three or four times. I mean, he advertises everything in a way that I've never seen in, in an English football manager. It just, it's a crossover appeal. Even Mourinho on English TV doesn't do that. It's, it's very interesting. So I think what's happened is you've had a small group of German coaches who've done very, very impressive things in the game that's created a reputation around the rest, which might be deserving, might not, but it's kind of... I'm not quite ready to say German coaching is where you go for, for coaches regardless. I mean, if you if you have access to a Tuchel or a Klopp, obviously, you know, that's a very, very attractive op- option. Hansi Flick deserves to be in that conversation too. I'd say that in a couple of years, Edin Terzic maybe as well. West Ham fans will remember him. Won the Pockel with, with Borussia Dortmund. But it's kind of, it's a fashion, isn't it? It's, it's, it's what it was 10 years ago when if you wanted an innovative coach, you went to Spain. Let's go and play, you know, neat possession football. So let's just go and get anybody from Spain. Not sure I completely believe in the kind of the national identity of coaching at the moment. And I think the coaching improvements that followed, for instance, Germany's performance in Euro 2000, it's kind of old hat. It's, it's, a, it's a change that happened a long time ago. So I don't know whether that's really reflective of, of German football, German coaching being at the forefront of the international game at the moment. It's a, it's a very, very interesting question. It deserves a thesis in response, actually, Mike. I think I'd also, just to add in, I mean, it's, it's right and there's a fashion thing. I remember that once it was Dutch coaches, then yeah. it was Spanish coaches, Portuguese coaches, obviously off the back of Mourinho. And we can all think of uh, people of those nationalities who, who've been successful in the Premier League and others who haven't been successful in the Premier League. You know, it's not a given that you're going to be successful. But the other thing that strikes me looking from the outside German coaches is how many of them have not been great players. Have been, they've not had a playing career, but a very moderate playing career. Whereas in England, we still got very much a Scherzer Caps mentality, whereby if you haven't played for England, well, what would you know about foot, coaching football? So you have to start in the lower divisions, very much so, and, and often don't get work promoted up. I think that's a great point, actually, Glenn, because I, I think it, it speaks to the absence of the kind of the anti-intellectualism intellectualism that exists in English football. If you read, for instance, the autobiographies of like former German internationals, I'm reading, um, my wife actually translated Per Mertesacker's into English, and I remember reading his and... You know, the focus on education, even when you're coming up as a player. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be the same choice for players between the game and their studies. Like for a long time, for much longer than seems to be the case in England, they're encouraged to do both. And I think over time, that probably results in a, the absence of that division between us and them, which is people who, who, who watch the game and people who digest and commentate and uh, analyse the game and people who've played it. I mean, you still see it on English TV, which is that you'll still get a kind of, right, put your medals on the table, pundit every now and again, who who thinks that sort of, you know, 100 games at Premier League level provides some sort of unimpeachable oversight on, on European football. It would be wrong to say that it doesn't. I think sometimes it goes a little bit too far. Sometimes we're a little bit disrespectful of what ex-pros have, um, have achieved and what they're able to contribute. In Germany, I don't really speak enough German yet to have a proper, proper oversight on on the culture. I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim to. Just doesn't seem to be the same. Like it doesn't, there doesn't seem to be as much pushback against journalists or data people or that kind of thing. It's just not quite the same. 
Yeah, there's a, I suppose there's a universality of, of coaching, isn't there, really? When you think about it, an analysis has actually, I think, blown it all apart anyway, because it is such a, a global thing. And, and uh, I also look at the UK and I wonder about coach education. And you now, look, that's a, probably a, a podcast in itself, to be honest. I suppose, and we better sort of get it, get ourselves back on track to a degree. Glenn, you know, you, you mentioned Liverpool earlier on. They're they're doing the right things in in terms of they've moved very quickly to balance the defence. Ibrahim Kanate's come in or coming in. Quebec has has not had his option taken up. Be interesting to see what the future holds for for Nat Phillips. By the way, I love that line about him as being the Bolton Barese. I think that's terrific. <laughs> um, how do you see that Liverpool team and, and group evolving over the next couple of months? Andy, Andy Reese williams uh, or Nick Williams. There's a lot of good young players. I mean, I watched uh, Liverpool under-23s recently and they've got a 16-year-old kid that just picked up from Derby, um, J.D. Gordon, who's sensational, best player in the park against you know, people four or five years older than him. There are lots and lots of very good young English players coming through uh, and Liverpool have quite a number of decent ones. I mean, look at what Harvey Elliott has done at Blackburn. Be interesting mm. if he can find a way in, into the team. So it's a case of blending those players coming through with you know bringing in one or two elite players from overseas yeah, and keeping what you've got. I mean, you know, it's nice to see from a Liverpool point of view that the noise around Mohamed um, Salah appears to die down a bit in terms of his future. And they had a very strong end to the season. Getting back in Champions League was obviously very important to them in terms of keeping players and in terms of bringing in players. You have to look at the, what they went through this season. And obviously, they weren't the only team with injuries, but to have so many injuries in one area and what they went through and how they recovered and how strongly they came through, you would have to say that next year you, you could see them as one of the... You're very much up there and challenging, which is one or two judicious changes, perhaps. I mean, one or two of them getting slightly longer than two, one or two changes, but yeah, lots of good players. It's going to be interesting to see what happens those, you know, with guys like Phillips and Williams is that you've had a taste of it. Are you going to be content to be sent back to the under-23s or you know, just sit on the bench, the occasional run out in the League Cup? Or are you going to say, actually, my career now, I need to move, I need to play regularly. Yeah, unless you have, I want to go out and loan or just simply want to, to move somewhere to, like, say, you know, a Brentford or a Norwich or a team that's going to be looking for someone like that, perhaps. Yeah, I don't think they'll be short of suitors. What about, well, one name that keeps cropping up said is is Basuma from Brighton. Uh, can you see that working? Guess what one accomplished all-round player he is. Does all the midfield, kind of the deep midfield imperatives really well. Is actually it's actually got quite a lot of flair for a central midfielder. I don't think he'll end up at Liverpool. I think he'll be a super signing for somebody. I don't know whether they would be willing to spend the kind of money they'd need to spend on a player who most likely wouldn't be an automatic starter. You know, you've still got Fabinho there, Jordan Henson recover from injury. We haven't seen the best of Thiago yet. And that, to me, even after uh, Jorginho Vijnaldum disappears this summer, I think that's probably their first choice group. You know, what's interesting, I think one of the best pieces of business Liverpool could do this summer is a really good backup goalkeeper. Because I think it's another safeguard. Like We, we think that um, they're on the verge of signing Ibrahim Kanate, who, for my money, is the better of the two Leipzig centre-halves. I really, really like him. I think he's a fantastic player. He would be he would have been my choice over Ibrahim but I think the kind of the problem, what this season has exposed is the drop off between the automatic starters at first team level and the players that have to compensate for, for injuries or suspensions. So good goalkeeper behind Allison is, is a must. You know, centre half will kind of sort itself. A goal scorer. I think that's kind of, 
if I'm going to spend my money, and I have to believe that Liverpool's money uh, budget this, this summer is finite, I think I want to centre forward over a kind of a more of a Basuma type. I need someone that can kind of light the way to a future without Roberto Firmino because, you know, he's coming towards the end of his prime and it's it's a position that, that there will have to be a transition at some point, so why not begin it now? Yeah, transition, I suppose, also on the agenda at Manchester United, Glenn. Jaden Sancho looks like it might well be back on again. A good fit for them? Yes, I think probably. Uh, obviously, not we worked out with Martial. I mean, Dan James hasn't really come through for them, so you need a little bit of that that penetration from wider areas. I think he would be a good fit for them uh, if they can get all the financials uh, sorted out, and if he's keen to come back. I mean, he doesn't seem to be particularly desperate to come back. He seems to be enjoying himself where he is. But um, if he does come back, I think that would be a good fit for them. There are, as you say, lots of questions about Manchester United. It always seems to be. They're, they're not failing bad enough to be failing and not succeeding enough to be a success. You know, particularly when you look at you know, the big figures like, like Solskjaer, like, like uh, Pogba, who, who had quite a strong second half of the season and then didn't really turn up in the, in the final. And the, therefore you're left looking at once again with them, you know, is this player good enough? Is he going to train on? Do they need to bring someone else in? And it's very much a quite, a, for like a lot of clubs, you know, it's quite a big sum in terms of decisions they make. There are some quite big decisions to be made there. Yeah, and, you know, without being unkind or even cheeky, a lot of Manchester United decisions seem to almost be have a, a marketing element to them. In that case, Seb, Cristiano Ronaldo, could you ever see him coming back to Manchester United? Well, first of all, Mike, sorry, I've just had to have a quick change of room. Uh, I think people have to bear with us during these COVID times. Um, so if I sound a little bit different, don't be alarmed. Ronaldo, funny one, I, I don't think so. I think that period in Manchester United's history where fame and celebrity and a player's standing mattered beyond attributes and effect on the team. I think that moment might have passed. I think they their recruitment still isn't perfect by any means, but they have evolved and they have uh, moved towards something which is healthier and which you know should be longer term. And Ronaldo, okay, Ronaldo remains a, a very good player. He's no longer really an outstanding one, but he certainly still is an enormous financial burden. And I couldn't think of a worse move to make at the current in the current environment than to to put yourself on the hook for those wages for a couple of years. I, I just I just don't see it, Mike. No. Well, and and by the way, you know, you are a fount of uh, wisdom wherever you're sitting. So thank you for that. <laughs> Uh, Glenn, um, staying with United, you know, it looks like we're on to another Paul Pogba saga being offered to PSG again, apparently. The thing that in, or the, the individual who intrigues me is, is Donny van der Beek, last seen in an extraordinary get-up which passes as the Netherlands team kit for the Euros. He's going to see Solskjaer about his future. Should he go or stay? I would say he should go, really. I mean, he's not getting a game at Manchester United. He wasn't even bought off the bench. He's had a year there, basically just sitting on the bench, kicking his heels. He's at an age where he needs to play. I mean, I'm sure, you know, financially, it's quite a good deal for him. But, you know, footballers aren't going to be, at that level aren't going to be short of a few quid either way. So uh, even if you had to take a drop in wages to go somewhere. United, I can't see why they would loan him out unless they feel that long-term he had come good. I mean, they must have felt it was a good enough finished article when they bought him to an extent. Therefore, you know, he's only had one year off the original deal. Probably should still be worth quite a quite a bit. Quite a lot will depend, perhaps. I mean, if I was United, I'd sit tight. If it, indeed, if I was him, I'd sit tight until after the Euros. If he has a really good Euros... 
suddenly his stock goes up again. Then, you know, he can make a better choice of where he goes to and they can get a higher fee for him. And he should be going into Euros thinking, this is my opportunity to show what United have been missing, you know, for the last year. And, you know, this is what I can do. Yeah, I suppose we're talking about example. Leicester are a great example, aren't they, Seb, in terms of their continuity and of, of purpose and strategy. You know, a lot of no-fuss recruitment already. Ryan Bertrand on a free, Boubakari Sumare, 18 million max from, from Lille, just won the league with them. He's got the, the right profile, 22 years old, isn't he? Perfect for them. Yeah, he is. He's uh, he's one of those players that had a very big reputation probably two years, two and a half years ago. And despite Lille just winning the title and him being largely excellent for most of the season, I don't know, I don't feel like he, he occupies quite the same space. But at the same time, where better to go than to a, a team coached by Brendan Rodgers? If you're a young player who's looking to kind of elevate themselves to, to develop and evolve, Brendan Rodgers is as good a coach as there is. And and again, it's something that we mentioned right at the beginning of the, of the podcast about what happens if you group a lot of players together of a similar age. And I know Leicester had a little bit of a disappointing end to the league season, but they've still got Harvey Barnes to come back, Justin to come back. Fafana at centre-half is super player in the making, just really, really great player. And I think that the value of the Samari deal might be that at some point, somebody's going to come knocking for an Ndidi. I mean, indeed, he's just an outstanding player and I think he'll command a very, very large fee. Now, Samari is, is, will be a Leicester player next season and that's great, but it also means that if and when indeed he were to be sold, you can make that sale, you've got your player in, your, in the bank, you then aren't in a position where you're going around Europe with everybody, every club on the continent knowing that you've got £80 million in your back pocket. So you've done your negotiation, you've got your player in, you start your transition early and then you don't disrupt your, your process later on. And I, I think, irrespective of the merits of the individual players, I think that's just a really good example of the clear-headed thinking that exists at Leicester. And that's, I think, probably what I admire more than most. Mm. Who do you think will spend the most to try and break into the top six, Glenn? My, my hunch is Everton. What about yours? <laughs> I might have to say Arsenal. Um, <laughs> Everton probably because they do seem to have a bottom, well, not quite bottomless pockets, but plenty of money. And they clearly need reinforcement. Uh, I did feel last year that the, the initially, first half of the season, the, the problem was probably a lack of depth. And, and that showed in one to eight when key players were injured. But towards the end of the season, even some of the sort of the, 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 the starters just seemed as if there was something missing. I mean, yeah, let's be honest, what was missing was 40,000 people at Goodison cheering on because their home record was diabolical and their away record was very good. And I think they missed fans perhaps as much as any team in the division last year, along with Sheffield United probably. So it'd be different when you see them at home with a crowd. I think it'd be different if they can keep uh, James Rodriguez fit, but that's quite a big if, obviously. They do need, yeah, they need cover, obviously, for Calvert-Lewin. There's one or two areas. I mean, how long can Seamus Coleman go on? I mean, again, you know, he finished strongly last year. So they do need strength in, in several areas, you feel, and they look prepared to spend. Yeah, if you talk to people around the club, they're talking about obviously the right back, but also a, a, a looking for a left-footed winger to operate on the right-hand side. I think the most intriguing name that I've heard mentioned is Daryl Dyke from Barnsley. You know, he came out of nowhere, you know, according to people who, who watch the championship a lot, saying he's far better than that. He'd be an interesting one, wouldn't he, um, Seb? 
I'd say so. I mean, I watched a little bit of him in the in the playoff semi final, and he is um, goodness. He's a direct footballer, isn't he? Mm. I think it would be, it'd be interesting because I I think one of the things that Everton have lacked. You're right about that left foot. It's it's a must, I think. But I feel like Everton have have, have had a lack of pace for a really long time, mm, and so. no matter how much money they spend, they never. It's almost like they go into a transfer window and they get distracted. And they forget the things that they've been lacking and they find this shiny thing on the top shelf there. And, you know, there's a deal to be done over here and I'll, I'll have that midfielder and maybe another playmaker and oh, let's have another, another number 10. If you added a bit of pace, I think you suddenly see a little bit of a different level, certainly from a player like Hamas Rodriguez, but also maybe someone like Gilfie Sigurdsson. You know, you create another distraction on the side and you give a little bit more space to Richarlison. I think that'd be a really nice, really interesting move for a player... For Everton also, I'd be keen to see them buying players with something to prove in their career. I want players who are stepping up into that side. Not too many, because you need to balance it. But that's the profile of footballer that I'd want, I think. Yeah. What about Leeds, Glenn? Are they on a bit of a knife edge here? You know, there'll obviously be an impact of the departure of, of Pablo Hernandez. Logic tells you that they might struggle to hold on to Rafinha. Where do you see them going this summer? And, you know, is there a chance that they can, they're in a position that the huge progress of last season will be squandered? I think they'll be okay. But as you say, it's a little bit of a touch and go thing. I mean, obviously, second season syndrome is a very common thing. I mean, Sheffield United obviously being the most glaring example. Of that. I don't think they're going to do that by any means. Um, but you can go back to things like Reading and Ipswich coming up. Lots of teams, you come up with that with that impetus of success, with that uh, desire, that drive, particularly leaves the amount of work rate, the, 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 the energy they put into it. And then it's quite hard to sustain that another year and another year and so on. And, second, and also teams start to work you out. It was interesting last year that although... There was this feeling that Bielsa's uh, tactics were non-negotiable. They were actually negotiable and they did become much less open in the latter half of the season, much, a bit less gung-ho while still being entertaining to watch. So there was an adjustment there. And suddenly they weren't conceding quite the number of goals they were conceding beforehand. And I, I think they'd be OK. I think partly because Bielsa will always attract players, which is helps, you know, a bit like the Ancelotti thing. I think the nature of it, I mean, they proved last year they must have very good sports medical department because they, they, they kept running all year, contrary to, you know, what's happened in the past and, and uh, some, some faults and I, I feel Leeds with a you know again next year what will give them the impetus next year this year was obviously being promoted next year will be the impetus of having Ellen Road fall which will be for his first full season of seeing the team back in the Premier League for mm. many, many yeah. years. I think that will be a big impact on Leeds. Yeah, and um, the, the loss of players, I mean, uh, were improving as individual players. Dallas, Bamford, uh, Harrison obviously needed to sort, sort that deal out but one or two others. So you're looking at a team that were looked definitely to be growing as a team. Right? And again, some judicious recruitment here or there, probably some we haven't heard of, maybe some we have heard of. And I think they'll be okay, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I hesitate to ask this, uh, Seb, but what about Spurs? They, it'd be intrigued, intriguing to find out what the move will be like when you get a full stadium at, at Tottenham. We've got the Harry Kane question, haven't we? If... And it seems likely that Daniel Levy, if he does do a deal, will need players coming back into the club. City are probably the the obvious area of opportunity. Who would you like to see coming in as pretty expensive make-weights? 
from in City? that deal. Well, from, from City. City. Well, I don't think I'd want anyone that, that they would let go. I mean, I've seen Nathan Aki mentioned, seen Gabriel Jesus mentioned. I, I just, there's no appeal in that for me. I think Jesus, the distance between Jesus and Harry Kane, not in terms of ability, just in what their function is, is enormous. I think uh, Nathan Aki was a hugely overpriced signing from Bournemouth. Good player at Bournemouth level, good mid-level player, probably could exist in the sort of the top eight as a as a as a credible centre half. Not someone you're going to build a defence on. I think actually the mood should be better than 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 expected, just because I mean Oliver Skip's coming back from Norwich. He's a very very good player, growing, developing, but nobody should count him out of the conversation. He's an excellent footballer. Also. Let's be honest, and it's the elephant in the room. It's going to depend who the, on who the manager is. I, th- I still, I mean, I, I don't know whether this is heart ruling head, but I, I would wouldn't be surprised to see Maurizio Pochettino manage Tottenham next season. I think that changes the dynamic a little bit because I think with Pochettino, all of a sudden some of those players can buy into the idea that the club would again be on a journey. I think Tottenham's problem at the moment is that, well, seemingly, apparently, according to reports. Players don't really feel like the club is going anywhere. While Pochettino has already proven that he can take the club somewhere, to the club to a European Cup final. He's your coach next season. That's very, very, very different. But I, I don't I don't really believe in make weights. Always it always makes me laugh actually when you when you see sort of fans sort of totting up what they would give in exchange for Harry Kane. You'd be like, well, you know, we'll give you the kind of the the kit man and a couple of corner flags and this player that we don't <laughs> want. And it's like you you're not dealing with you're not dealing with a newly promoted team. It's not take out your trash. You're dealing with a, you know, like Daniel Levy. It's not. It's not just sort of your approximation of what a player's worth equals Harry Kane's valuation. And if, if Spurs were to get sort of fifty million plus a couple of City, you know, players from their bench, I think that'd be incredibly disappointing. I think it, 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 without question, it has to get close to the uh, Neymar figure that PSG paid for Barcelona, and I think it has to be in cash. I think that's the only way that deal gets done. Hmm. Well, I suppose Tottenham will be without Serge Aurier, who's just announced <laughs> that he's at the end of my cycle. I, I love the line that Paul McCarthy came up with where he said, who does he think he is, a spin dryer? Which, um, uh, yeah, I don't think it'd be a great loss. You know, Seb mentioned the promoted clubs there, Glenn. Is it significant that all three, Norwich, Watford and Brentford, they thrive on on clever recruitment? Yes, I think if you're going to have limited budget, that's the way of finding your way out. There's, there are teams, certainly in the Championship, with more money than those three, who haven't spent it in when it was wisely. The next question, of course, is can you keep that going? As Leicester have shown, you probably can in the uh, top flight. Norwich, up, down, up, down, up, down. be nice if they can stay there. You know, Watford, to an extent, a little bit. They're, obviously, they're, they have slightly different recruitment patterns the way they do. All three of them, all three of them are quite clever in recruitment whilst doing it through very different methods. Uh, I'd be interested which method proves most successful when they get into the top flight. They've got different means and, and different networks and, of doing this. But it's going to be quite interesting, you know, with those three coming up, and obviously all three going down, well, two of the three going down last year and one uh, from two years ago. Yeah, it, there's no obvious um, deadbeats hanging on in the Premier League this year. Like often there's a team that, you think, oh, they, they, they're a bit lucky, um, they'll go next year. It's going to be, I'm not quite sure how competitive it's going to be at the top end, but I think it's going to be quite competitive at the bottom end mm. to see who goes down. Yeah. Do you see those any of those three surviving, Seb? Yeah, I think Norwich will survive. I, I like Brentford's chances. I think they've got a good group of players. I think most importantly, they've got a goal scorer. That always helps. I think Ivan Tony will 
score a lot of goals in the Premier League. I think they obviously need to reinforce. But uh, no, I, 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 I also feel like there's a lot of teams in the Premier League that are waiting to be relegated, but just haven't been because the quality beneath them hasn't quite been good enough. Now, when you bring a group of, of uh, when you bring a group of clubs like that up into the division, I always start to get nervous if I was uh, a Newcastle, for instance, and I was, you know, Mike Ashley, or Mike Ashley was owning my football club, you know, and you, you know, you brace for another plod through the transfer market. I think um, no, I, I think that there's all there are very interesting stories. There's no. I don't mean it's the wrong way, but there's no there's no lottery winner amongst them. They've all earned their place and everybody who's watched those teams this season will think, yeah, they will be a worthy addition to the league and they will be able to compete. Norwich especially because they've had the, the kind of the added wisdom of their experience last time round and some of those players know what they're going into and I think they're coming back a better team. So no, I feel very positive about the newly promoted. Yeah, well, that's next season. Let's have a final nod at last season, if we could, and, and try and come up with a team of that season. I'll start, if you like, just to, to stimulate debate more than anything else. As a goalkeeper, Pope would be mine. I do feel that he does suffer from the Burnley syndrome. But if you look at the stats, no no goalkeeper's got a better save percentage. 77% of the 148 shots on target that he faced any arguments against that, chaps? No. no. I'd go for Martinez at Villa, who um, also saved quite a lot of shots. Um, yeah, Villa, Villa kept a quite a good, decent record in terms of clean sheets and stuff, but that was largely due to a goalkeeper making a hell of a lot of saves. He faded very slightly towards the end, but uh, I thought we had an excellent season and there must be people at Arsenal wondering if they let the wrong goalkeeper go. Yeah, they possibly did, I think. As a, as a back four, I'll give you four names and you, you throw some back to me if you could, please, chaps. I go for Kufal as a as a bargain of the season in many ways. Fafana is the probably the best young defender. Diaz, who was our footballer of the year in the Football Rights Association, and I probably pump for for Saka, who for me was the highlight of of Arsenal season. It's you know, the jury's out as to whether he actually would play as a left back or or where he will play and where he will have the biggest impact. Anyone else that that, that I've missed out? I think I picked short left back for an outstanding season and also his personal comeback from where he was a couple of years ago. But And he, he obviously did play left back all year. Right back's interesting, given the fact how many brilliant English right backs we've got. And I mean, I know it's the Sunday Times, um, they picked two different Manchester City right backs in uh, North Coast and Sunessi's teams, <laughs> Cancelo and uh, Walker. And you can make an argument for a lot of players at right back, including Rich James, who I might have gone for. But Kufau's a perfectly decent choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seb? Uh, only a name I'd add, I think, is uh, Aaron Cresswell. I know he played as a kind of a left-sided centre half for most of the season, but I thought he was largely excellent and uh, you know part of a really good news story at West Ham. Mm, yeah, in midfield, De Bruyne, and I suppose the question there is: Will will his injury affect his participation in the Euros? And Golo Kante, I love him, and like everyone else, I think he's probably everyone's favourite footballer. A complete eternal motion job. Bruno Fernandes, brilliant until he was burnt out, and probably Mason Mount, especially after the the Champions League win. You know, we can we can play with shapes and strategies and systems, but um, any other names that that you guys would uh, come up with in that in that conversation? Probably Thomas Suchek. I think I, I would add him in just because I, I like a I like a kind of an elbows and studs kind of midfielder who's useful in both boxes. I think he was the backbone of what what West Ham achieved too. I think he's uh, more than deserving of a nod there. 
There's an argument for Son, who also had an exceptional season at Spurs and the Spurs that sort of falling apart around him and Kane. Grealish was great till he got injured. Gundogan had a fantastic spell. I mean, I, I wouldn't personally disagree with your four. Son might be the nearest one to get in in terms of shape. Yeah, and further forward, Mo Salah, 31 goals in 51 matches again, and probably Harry Kane, who pipped him to the golden boot. Anyone else? Phil Foden, I suppose, has to have a mention somewhere down the line. Oh, there have been times when I've been watching Phil Foden and I've just thought that he's a completely different class of English footballer. I mean, just some of his, and not necessarily in his overall effect on City's season because they're so talented, although he played a worthy part. I just mean his individual ability. I think he's one of the players that I've enjoyed watching. You know, the way he receives the ball, the way he turns onto it, the way he sees space. I think there been times, particularly in Europe, actually, where he's just been outstanding. Just a, a word on Kane, actually, Mike, because I, I voted for him for the FWA Football of the Year Award. And... Um, I just feel like it's it's gone a little bit under the radar just how well he's done in such a bad team. Spurs have been rotten at times, really, really poor. And his production has been amazing. And some of his goals as well, if, if you think about that sort of that that carved effort into the, the top corner he scored, you know, some of his work off the ball, his combination work with Son, the way he kind of reinvented himself mid-season in a way that allowed him to compensate for what the team couldn't do. No number 10, no Ericsson, Kane drops in and a world-class centre-forward turns himself effectively into a number 10 mid-season. It's an incredible achievement. Yeah. Yeah, the top the both the scoring charts and the assist charts in the same it's season. It's, it's quite It's quite remarkable, yeah. I must admit. Uh, and that one other player I'd give an honourable mention to would be uh, UET Elements at uh, Leicester, who had a terrific season. Yeah. Well, we're all getting geared up for the Euros. Gareth Southgate will name his his final squad on Tuesday. Mason Greenwood... You know, even as we've been speaking, as as withdrawn from the squad because of an existing injury. Talk about Jesse Lingard expecting to be let go, and obviously there'll be a a huge debate about Trent Alexander Arnold. I suppose finally, uh, chaps, can we just look at the Euros pretty briefly, and a simple question really: Who wins the Euros, and why? Glenn? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd, well I'd, I'd love to say England, obviously. I think the big advantage they've got, they, uh, they've got a, a very talented group of players with much more depth than has been the case in tournaments in the past and a lot of games at Wembley. But when you look at their uh, progress, I mean, it looks as if if you, if you scan it out, and obviously something will change in this, it looks like they have to go through Portugal, Spain, Belgium and then France to win it, which is a hell of a quartet to try and beat one after the other. One of those games is going to go to penalties. At least, you know, they now win penalty shootouts as well. Um, I'd love to say England. Um, my suspicion, I don't think they're the only one in this group, is France look the best balanced team, to be honest. You do wonder whether Belgium might finally make it or whether they just got a bit too old. Yeah, I, I know you were watching this game last night, Seb, but I was astonished that the French under-21 team lost because they looked just as good as the first team. What about you in terms of... Um, you know who would who will win? Going to be a bit of a contrarian about it. I think it's it's um it's unreasonable at the moment to say anyone but France just because of their strength and the kind of the the quality they have in all those different positions and because they know what it is to win a major tournament. I quite like Portugal. If you look at what they have in different areas and their attacking flair and they still have Ronaldo, who's a little bit like one of those kind of siege guns that you wheel into position these days. He's not as mobile as he used to be. They're awfully, awfully talented and they're not really lacking in any position. And I think they'll, um, you know, if there is an upset, if there is anyone but France to win it, it will be them. 
Yeah, I must admit, I have to agree with you. And you know, I can't see beyond France, probably. But if you if you want me to raise my sights, I think Portugal, if anything, they've got a better and deeper squad than in 2016. You know, obviously the problem is Group F, where they'll come up against France and Germany. But they'll manage to survive that introduction. They'll be hardened to sudden death football and they could cause a lot of problems for a lot of teams. Who's your winner? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Glenn and Seb for their insight and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 